This week on the Monument Lab podcast, we speak with Brenton Mock, staff writer for City Lab. He is a reporter who focuses on the role of justice and civil rights in the laws and policies that govern our lives, particularly in the urban environment. He has a long history of reporting on environmental justice and voting rights and voter suppression. We speak to Mock about his recent piece for City Lab, The Strangest Form of White Flight, a feature within a larger series on the cityhood movement in Georgia, which Mock describes as a Brexit-style secession to carve up new cities informed by racial politics and legacies of segregation. Before City Lab, Mock served as justice editor for the environmental news site Grist and as national correspondent for Colorlines.com. His work also has appeared in The Nation, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Essence. This is Monument Lab. Welcome to Monument Lab, a public art and history podcast. Each episode, we'll be talking to artists, activists, and historians about the monuments we've inherited from the past and the people and movements who are critically engaging them today. These are the people building the next generation of monuments through stories of social justice and solidarity. You can read more at monumentlab.com. Brenton Mock, thank you for joining the Monument Lab podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. A week before the election, you published an article, The Strangest Form of White Flight for City Lab. It's a deeply troubling and remarkable story about a ballot measure in Georgia to create a new, mostly white municipality called Eagles Landing, carved out of an existing city, Stockbridge who had recently elected a Black mayor and all-Black city council. How did this special ballot measure first come to your attention? Wow. Um, I've been running a series based off of what's called the cityhood movement, which is happening around Metro Atlanta, the suburbs of Atlanta. Basically, uh, Metro Atlanta has a lot of unincorporated areas, meaning basically areas that fall within a county, but they don't belong to a city or any municipality. But lately, since 2005, some of these unincorporated areas have decided that they wanted to uh, municipalize, you know, incorporate themselves into cities. And I was doing reporting out of DeKalb County. Um, If you know anything about Metro Atlanta, it consists of five or six different counties that come together uh, that that encompass the entire Metro Atlanta region. Uh, DeKalb County is one of the major counties. And I was doing some reporting on some cityhood movement that was happening there. And it was as I was doing reporting there that uh, the people I was talking with say, well, you you also need to look down at Henry County, uh, which is uh, south of Atlanta. DeKalb County is east of Atlanta. Basically, the people in DeKalb, they were saying, like, there's something really crazy happening down there. There's basically uh, a, a black city down there uh, that has a white neighborhood that is looking to basically secede from it, like in a Brexit uh, kind of way. Uh, but not only do they want to secede, but they want to take, like, half of the city. Uh, and we're talking about the city of Stockbridge. They want to take half of the city of Stockbridge with it. It's completely unprecedented, completely crazy. And that was enough to get my attention. And Stockbridge is where Black Panther and other productions are filmed? Are there other important parts of the city to understand? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, they call it Hollywood South. It's um, the staging grounds for several uh, several TV shows and movies. Some of the scenes from Black Panther, if you uh, see, saw that movie and you Think of that big mountain with the waterfall where Killmonger and Black Panther fight, you know, and Killmonger, you know, throws them over the edge. All of that was shot in this area in the city of Stockbridge. Uh, also, the TV show The Walking Dead uh, is it, shot there. Stranger Things, um, a bunch of others. I, I mean, I could go on, but it, it's 
it's a pretty well-known area. Um, and because Georgia has a pretty generous um, film tax credit, a lot of movie studios go there to, to film. You've placed this in the context of the cityhood movement. Uh, curious to hear more. What is the cityhood movement? And how does this compare to other precedents, including segregation, white flight, uh, and other tactics of exclusion? As I said before, the cityhood movement happening around the suburbs of Atlanta, uh, unincorporated neighborhoods are ponying up to become new cities. And as you can imagine, the places that can afford to do this, right, are the wealthiest neighborhoods. And there's been about a dozen new cities that have formed since 2005, starting with Sandy Springs, which is north of Atlanta. Sandy Springs and the, the, the majority of the new cities that have formed have been these white, wealthy enclaves. Um, when you look at Metro Atlanta, uh, it's, it's act, Metro Atlanta is actually a quite diverse place overall, when you, especially when you compare it to a lot of other places around America. But what you in, in various areas around Metro Atlanta, you have these pockets where a lot of the wealthiest residents live, um, white residents live. And this, this is also where most of the commercial and economic development happens. So when you go into these neighborhoods uh, like Brookhaven, Dunwoody, Sandy Springs, these are the places where people all around Metro Atlanta go to go shopping, to eat at a fancy restaurant, to stay at a nice hotel, you know, all the biggest shopping malls. All of those, for the most part, are closest to these white, wealthy neighborhoods. Since they have that kind of revenue coming in and out of there, they know that they can they can basically use that revenue to become their own city. They don't have to uh, depend on the county anymore uh, to survive, right? It should be said, when I talk about these uh, 10, 10 or so new cities that have formed, um, a lot of them formed right when their county government became uh, mostly black, right? When, when the county commissioners, county CEOs, when they became African-Americans, this is usually when uh, white neighborhoods have decided that they don't want to be subject to the county anymore. They want to be, become their own city. And so this has been happening all around for the most part in, uh, like I said, white, wealthy neighborhoods. And it's and that's kind of, you know, the segregation that exists in Metro Atlanta uh, kind of paved the way for that to happen. Only in recent years have we seen a few cases of majority African-American neighborhoods uh, municipalizing. Uh, one is uh, South Fulton in Fulton County, which is west of Atlanta. Uh, you have another city called Stonecrest, which is far deep east in DeKalb County. Uh, both of those majority black cities that formed in the last uh, two years. And there is a pending proposal for a majority black city in DeKalb County called Greenhaven uh, that has not been able to get through the legislature. Uh, but um, basically, these places, these majority black neighborhoods are not forming for the same reasons that the majority white neighborhoods have formed cities. Uh, the, the black cities, um, they're basically forming because they're being left behind. Let me kind of spell this out. So in DeKalb County, you know, there's North DeKalb and there's South DeKalb. Most of the white neighborhoods are in North DeKalb County. And like I said, most of the commercial and economic development, uh, uh, commercial real estate is in North DeKalb County as well. When those areas in North DeKalb County formed their own city, basically what they did is they sucked a lot of the tax revenue that they were generating out of the county that the county normally would have would have depended on to provide services throughout the rest of DeKalb County. So when these white wealthy neighborhoods, when they uh, form new cities and take most of their tax revenue with them, what's left behind are the less wealthier areas the areas where there are more African-Americans living and they still have services that need, that need to be paid for, right? Your, your police, your fire, parks and recreation, zoning, water, infrastructure. But now the county has less tax revenue to work with to provide services to those areas. So now the leftover areas, the leftover black areas are, are basically saying, well, well, we need to municipalize also then so that we can keep our tax revenue, at least what we have, to ourselves and you know we don't have to share it with the rest of the county 
Um, so that, that's a it's a very kind of complicated process that's going on throughout Metro Atlanta, but it's very much informed uh, by the segregation that exists there. And when you say that segregation paved the way for this cityhood movement, um, what specifically comes to mind? How do you see those legacies playing out now? When you look at the areas that are municipalizing, the way that they're drawing the new municipal borders for the new cities, they're able to very easily carve out an area that is predominantly white because that is the the pattern, the the you know the spatial uh, layout of the of the county. It's very easy for them to just carve out this neighborhood that just happens to be majority white, but that's because that's where all of the uh, of white residents have flocked to. Um, and then what happens is what, who gets left behind are black, you know, black neighborhoods. And it's again, it's because of the, the spatial relationship that it has with the other neighborhoods around uh, Metro Atlanta. It would be one thing if people were carving out cities and there was a lot of racial inclusion and diversity and economic diversity. That's not the case. Uh, even when we talk about Henry County and the story we were just talking about before, um, the neighborhood that tried to break away from Stockbridge, the neighborhood is called Eagles Landing, um, they carved out an area that actually had some racial diversity. It was about equal parts African-American and white, but they definitely selected the, the wealthiest neighborhoods to put into this new city that would have been called Eagles Landing. Um, and they were able to do that because of the economic segregation that exists. Uh, the wealthiest neighborhoods would have been in Eagles Landing, and then the poor and working class neighborhoods of Stockbridge would have been left behind. Not to mention the racial composition of the city of Stockbridge. It was mostly black people who were left out of it. So you have a city of Stockbridge that would have been uh, majority low-income, working class, majority African-American uh, these were the people who would have been excluded from the city of, of Eagles Landing. Speaking of class dynamics, one detail that you uncovered in your reporting, which just jumped off the page, was this idea that one of the motivations of the ballot measure was so that Eagles Landing could recruit a cheesecake factory. When that came up in your conversations, um, what were your thoughts and, and how does that play out as this this detail that is it seems trivial, but it carries with it a, a punch? It was startling. Um, basically, when I when I went to Henry County to um, to report on this story, um, I went to go meet with the people who were behind the effort to you know, secede, it's, it's secede Eagles Landing away from the city of Stockbridge. The, the woman who was behind this, her name was Vicky Consiglio. Uh, I met with her at uh, this big fancy country club that anchors the neighborhood of Eagles Landing. I sat and talked with her for maybe an hour and a half. I had spoken with her plenty of times before on the phone as well. And what I recognized... Um, kind of indexed in our conversation was that she, she kept mentioning Cheesecake Factory, right? Um, when I would ask her, you know, like, why do this? It's one thing if you want to start your own city just in the unincorporated neighbor in the unincorporated neighborhoods, nothing wrong with that. But why try to take half of a whole city um, that's already established with you? Um, and her answer was that she was trying to make this new city, Eagles Landing, more economically attractive um, for upscale eateries and fancy hotels and uh, fancy stores to come to Eagles Landing, right? She, she thought that she could not do that as long as they were associated with this city called Stockbridge. And she was very specific when she talked about what kind of upscale eateries, um, her words, that she went in, and it, where Cheesecake Factory just kept coming up. Even when I had spoken with her previously on in phone interviews for pre previous stories, because I, I wrote three stories on this, um, it, it just kept coming up. And, and I was just like, what, <laughs> like what, what is it with them in Cheesecake Factory? Like, oh, do they not know that, you know, that this is kind of a cheesy suburban uh, punchline restaurant <laughs> to most people? But, you know, to be honest, the kind of place, the kind of city that they were trying to create, very much sounded like a like a, a cheesy 
forgive the, the forgive the pun, um, a cheesy suburb. Everything that she described about it, uh, you know, in, in the kind of places that she wanted to put in there, um, you know, no offense to Cheesecake Factory or anyone who likes Cheesecake Factory. She may have been very sincere in wanting that specific restaurant for whatever reason, um, but it was clear that it was smoke and mirrors for something else, which was that they wanted to do this Brexit thing where it, where they could finally control the land and finally control how their tax revenue was was generated and shared. And in doing that, they did not want to share their tax dollars with the people from the city of Stockbridge. Um, again, would would be kind of this poor blacker remnant of Stockbridge left over. Uh, Stockbridge had just elected its first mayor, uh, black mayor, and all African-American city council. Um, it was clear from talking with her that she had a lot of disdain for that mayor and that city council. Um, and just from talking with people in both Eagles Landing and Stockbridge, it was clear that, uh, you know, wealthy white people had controlled Stockbridge for almost all of its 100-year history. So they're, they're in a new kind of milieu, if you will, where all of a sudden they're looking around and, and you know, have a black mayor, a black city council, the African-American population has, has you know, has grown um, significantly over the past decade. And they saw that they were losing their power grip on this place. And so that was the real reason behind it. The Cheesecake Factory was kind of kind of put up as this uh, this illusionary thing. I, I guess it's what they thought would sound the best in the media, other than saying we don't want to be associated with this black city. But it, you know, the Cheesecake Factory right now sounded just as bad. It seems uncanny to um, the television program Parks and Recreation, where there's a town Eagleton next to Pawnee has similar dynamics, but of course this. You know, as you said, there's smoke and mirrors because this is ultimately about exclusion and a fear of of power on behalf of uh, an African-American electorate and elected officials. There were several ways that this could have happened. Right. Um, a, a lot of Eagles Landing is in unincorporated Henry County. Right. If they wanted to have more say in their government and more control over their local zoning and land use policies. One thing they could have done was they could have lobbied the city of Stockbridge to incorporate those areas into the city of Stockbridge and to annex all of that unincorporated area into the city of Stockbridge, uh, which would have been a more inclusionary model, right? You know, we're, we're going to share in the decision making with the rest of the city. We're going to share in the tax revenue generation uh, and and resources. Uh, but they chose to go the opposite way, right? They didn't want to do inclusionary. They wanted to do exclusionary, which is form a competing city um, right next to it. And the part of Stockbridge that they wanted to take from Stockbridge was just happened to be the area that had, it was Stockbridge's commercial real estate district, right? It was it was like the one one major area where there were already, you know, restaurants and stores and in hotels, it was the major tax gener- uh, tax revenue generator for the city of Stockbridge, and they wanted and Eagles Landing wanted to basically just swipe that away. Um, but yeah, the irony was not lost on me that this was exactly applied out of Parks and Rec, um, and as it happens, one of the um, municipal services that Eagles Landing said that they wanted to take on was Parks and Recreation. On. On Election Day, the ballot measure did not pass this strange form of white flight as as you've written, you know, did not take hold. It was not um, agreed upon by voters. What what did the vote reveal to you? It was a ballot initiative in order for an unincorporated area to become a city. That neighborhood that wants to become a city has to lobby to the state general assembly. They have to produce legislation that will be passed through the state general assembly. But the legislation that gets passed is basically um, just permission for a ballot referendum to go on for election day, which allows the people who live in that area to vote on whether they want to become a city or not. 
Um, so the ballot referendum on election day for Eagles Landing, the place that that would have become Eagles Landing, um, would have had nine thousand, I believe, nine thousand people in it. Um, there were roughly eight thousand people who voted on this ballot initiative. That let me know one thing, which was a lot of people were paying attention to this. If you know anything about ballot initiatives and referendums, it, that's usually the lowest hanging fruit on election day. A lot of people don't vote. You, you usually have very low turnout, very low rates of people who vote on ballot initiatives, mainly because they don't know what the ballot initiative is, because usually there's very poor ed- voter education outreach on ballot initiatives. Um, also, ballot initiatives notoriously are very poorly worded, almost intentionally written in a way to confuse voters. So a lot of voters just end up not even dealing with it. Um, but that was not the case for this Eagles Landing um, ballot initiative. Roughly maybe 80, 90 percent of the people um, who would have lived in the city came out and voted for this thing. So that, that let me know that this, you know, people were really aware of this. And they were really hyped up about it. The ballot initiative lost the differential. It was like 5,000 to 3,000 votes. I'm rounding up very generously. Um, but I saw that 3,000 people came out to vote for this. Um, now, in my head, and people I, I spoke with said that we'd be lucky if 300 people voted on this. This was before the vote happened. Because um, they thought that like most people just wouldn't care. They were confused. Um, but you know, 3000 people voted for it. Um, so it was the ballot, you know, Eagles landing lost that ballot lost, but you know, if I'm the people behind Eagles landing, I'm looking at 3000 people and I'm saying like, Hey, I, you know, I have a, something to work with here. You know, maybe I might just, you know, change a few things in this proposal and we try this thing again in a couple of years. Um, I haven't spoken with Vicky Consiglia or the people behind uh, Eagles Landing uh, since that vote was taken. But when I spoke with her before, she she was very determined, very adamant about this happening. And I wouldn't be surprised if she's seen the 3,000 or so people who showed up to vote as a kind of a mandate for them to bring this thing back to the ballot very soon. You've covered voter suppression. Um, for City Lab and color lines, especially around the dismantling of the Voting Rights Act. How do you see the current election, and especially given the work that you've done around Eagles Landing, as a real challenge to the democratic process um, in Georgia and, and, and perhaps elsewhere? Georgia is one of many states across the former Confederacy, across the Deep South, um, that has a long entrenched history of trying to make it as difficult as possible for uh, Black people to vote, if not keep them from voting altogether. And what we've seen in Georgia in in this election um, is just a continuation of that legacy. you know, voter suppression is, is heritage in Georgia. They might as well put voter suppression on their state flag. We can start with one of the more um, controversial policies that are in place, which is that um, when they uh, fill out their voter registration forms, um, basically those registration forms uh, will go to the, the Department of uh, the Secretary of State's office. Um, or to the Department of Motor Vehicles, where the voter registration information on the card is cross-checked against other databases, such as uh, driver's license database, social security database, to ensure that everything on the voter registration card uh, 100% exactly matches with whatever information is in those databases. Um, And what happens is, you know, the person filling out the voter registration form, they don't know how this information looks in these databases. Maybe on your driver's license, uh, your name is Thomas, and that's what it says on your driver's license. But, you know, you're known as Tom to the neighborhood and to your friends. And so that's what you put on your, your voter registration form. Um, the Secretary of State's office sees that as a discrepancy. We need to put a pause on this 
meaning basically we're not going to put the registration form all the way through. You may not even know that your registration hasn't gone through until you go to vote on election day or if you go in for early voting. Um, basically, this is something that uh, the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, uh, you know, the guy who happens to be in the, the runoff race against uh, Stacey Abrams. Um, this is something that Brian Kemp has been trying to do for the past 10 years. When he first tried to do it, Georgia was subjected to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act um, under a preclearance. This is where it's going to get a little wonky, but under a preclearance formula that is set in Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. And basically, that preclearance formula says uh, there are certain areas in the United States, mostly across the Deep South, that have a history of discriminating against Black people when they go to vote. And because of that, we want these states, anytime they try to create a new voting policy, that policy has to be reviewed and approved or rejected by the federal government, specifically by the Department of Justice. Um, Georgia was subjected to that preclearance formula uh, up until 2013 when the U.S. Supreme Court got rid of that preclearance formula. Um, so now there are no states that are subjected to that. It's, you know, all the states that, again, have this history of fighting against the voting rights of Black people, literally not letting them vote or making it as difficult as possible, all of a sudden, all of those states across the Deep South are now on equal standing with the rest of the United States. And this means that they can make all kinds of changes to the voting policy, and they don't have to have them pre-cleared or reviewed by the federal government. Um, that exact match voter registration policy I was referring to, that was at one point rejected by the federal government when Georgia was subjected to the Section 4 preclearance formula. But once the Supreme Court struck um, that preclearance formula, Brian Kemp put that policy through to the state afterward, and it was approved. And ever since then, there have been hundreds of thousands of people whose voting registrations have been, uh, have been challenged or paused or frozen uh, or erased um, from, the, from the files. The grand majority of those people have been African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, several civil rights organizations, such as NAACP, LDF, uh, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, several voting rights um, advocacy organizations have sued Brian Kemp over this policy. Um, they continue <laughs> to sue him. Even, like, even now, as we speak, there's you know litigation pending over this. When the Supreme Court, when they took Georgia and the southern states out of this uh, preclearance formula. They said they did it because the, the days of racism are over, right? They, they said this might have been good, you know, back in the 60s when they were firehosing uh, African-Americans, but we don't, we don't have anything like that anymore, so we don't need this formula. But everything that's been happening in Georgia suggests that we definitely still need to have this uh, preclearance review process happening by the federal government. In your work, you are exploring these really urgent, timely issues concerning this election, but you connect your reporting to legacies of exclusion and repression in the past, whether that be um, around segregation um, or ongoing displacement or discrimination. How do you explore that connection between these tactics of the past and the practices of the present when it comes to voting rights and the kind of right to city? It, it's, it's just white supremacy. You know, and white, white supremacy is not static. I mean, you, you know, it's like a cancer. You, you, can, you can eliminate it to a certain degree in one organ, and then you come to find out that it's metastasized and has reformed in another organ. And it's it's and it's doing different activity and different damage, um, but it's still the same. But it's still cancer, and that cancer is still white supremacy. So we we blotted out, you know, perhaps legalized racial segregation. Yeah, you can't tell black people that you can't live here or you can't live in this neighborhood or you can't live on this street, 
anymore. That is true, but now it's just more insidious. It's right now it's just we want to have control of zoning so that we can control what kind of uh, you know how this street is used. Um, whether it's for residential, and if it is for residential, what kind of residential are we going to exclude? Multifamily apartment housing, which usually brings in renters, people of low income, people of color, and make it exclusively just for single family houses. Um, that is just a, another way of instituting segregation, just you know, in a different font. So. It, it, the, the connection between what's happening now and in the past, what they have in common is white supremacy. If there was no white supremacy, there would be no one who was trying to control who and what comes into a city or who and what gets taken out of a city. You know, if there was no white supremacy, there would be no reason for voter suppression because everyone would be equally invested in everyone having a fair shot at voting. Everyone would be equally invested and everyone having a fair shot at holding certain offices, whether that's the governor or whether that's a county commissioner or whether that's mayor. But we understand that it's been whites and white men in particular who've, you know, who've occupied these seats, you know, governor seats, mayor seats, city council seats, state legislative, congressional district. White men have controlled these seats forever in the United States, right? We're only in the past 20 years really seeing some kind of critical mass of uh, people of color and women finally coming in to occupy these seats. And I think white men are aware of this because of their loyalty to white supremacy. They are constantly trying to change the rules such that they can continue to have their hold on power, have their hold on these seats, have their hold on land use, how land is used, that is, the, that, is the, that is what is causing them to constantly change the rules, change the laws um, to make it more difficult for people of color, women, uh, to be able to participate uh, in democracy, in, uh, in city government, in state government, uh, and really all forms of, of government. A few episodes ago, we spoke to art historian Kirk Savage about white supremacy and the development of Civil War memory that erased the experiences of enslaved peoples and African-American soldiers um, in place of a public memory around the Confederacy. Kirk Savage spoke about this as part of a, a massive PR campaign and a plan to hold power over an emancipated African-American population. You've written about this in a few ways. You know, your piece, Say Goodbye to Confederate Avenue, around another issue in Georgia, took on the attempts to rename some of Atlanta's Confederate commemorative streets. What is the status of that work? And how do you see that as a tool for confronting these um, these tactics of, of exclusion. What is the point of having streets that are named after military generals from the Confederate Army whose main mission was to keep slavery and white supremacy uh, alive and as the, 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 as the fuel for America? What, what is the point of having streets named after those people? What, are, what is the point of having big stone monuments um, commemorating these people, these people who wanted to have white supremacy be the prevailing, you know, rule of law over all of America? Uh, the, the only reason to have streets named after those people, have monuments standing that commemorate those kind of people, Confederates, is to remind America that white supremacy is still with us. Yes, the Confederates lost the Civil War, um, but white supremacy is still here. And we're going to remind everyone about that every day by naming the street that you live on after the military generals who fought on behalf of the Confederate cause or to have these monuments in Atlanta on Stone Mountain, the one, one of the highest elevated mountains 
in that entire region. Um, and on that, you have inscribed the largest Confederate memorial in, in America, overlooking a supposedly black city. This it, it, They call Atlanta the Black Mecca, right? <laughs> and, and, it, and literally, you have a huge inscription of, of white Confederate generals over, literally overseeing this city. There are conversations being had about, well, what do we do? Do we, do we take the memorial down or do we put other people in it? And we're having that conversation in 2018 about what to do about people who fought to keep slavery and white supremacy alive back in the, in the 1800s. You know, Atlanta just now voted to rename several streets that were named after Confederate generals in 2018. And they took a year of studies. I mean, they had a committee they put together. They studied this and researched this to just to come to the conclusion that, yeah, maybe these guys are racist and we shouldn't have streets named after them. I mean, that, that wouldn't have taken a year if you asked most black people who live in, in, in Atlanta. That would have taken a few seconds. They said, no, you know, let's get rid of it. I mean, when you look at these things from the perspective of the oppressed and the victims of white supremacy, these are not things that need to be studied, researched, debated, discussed in any kind of way. Because they are the people who have to live with this and have to be reminded of the fact that white supremacy is still ruling their lives in a lot of different ways. And it's going to take a, a gargantuan effort to really crumble white supremacy. But the very least that we can do is take its monuments down, the things that, the, the things that are memorializing it. And that's where we're at today. It's not just in Atlanta. It's happening in Baltimore. It's happening in New Orleans. It's happening in Memphis. We have so many monuments. I mean, there are literally thousands of monuments to a cause that wanted to enslave all non-white people in this country. And a lot of those are still standing and a lot of them are still being debated. And it makes literally no logic. It arguably is a monument to white supremacy itself that we are only debating whether these things should come down as opposed to just doing a blanket sweep of them. From your perspective, um, across these different cities that, that you mentioned, which are reckoning with Confederate monuments, commemorative streets, and other kinds of sites of memory, what is the relationship between elected officials and activists? Are you seeing ways that they work together? Are you finding other spaces where there's a, a, an obvious tension around pushing that status quo? Here's an obvious tension. When you talk to activists, there's a group called Take Them Down NOLA in New Orleans. This is a group that had been pushing, advocating for taking down Confederate monuments um, in New Orleans uh, for decades. I mean, it's a, the organization itself, Take Them Down NOLA, is only a few years old, but the the uh, the advocacy push to bring down the monuments is is something that lasted decades. Former Mayor Mitch Landrew, he uh, decided to have four of them brought down uh, in recent in last year. Um, there's still hun- dozens, hundreds um, all over Louisiana and New Orleans that are still standing before we're taken down. And there definitely was not <clears throat> there definitely was not a lot of synchronicity between uh, the mayor and the activists. Right. The activists were trying to they were trying to do a broader push to bring down all symbols of white supremacy uh, throughout New Orleans. And the mayor wanted to kind of focus on a few that they found that he thought were the most problematic. Um, there wasn't even synchronicity between the mayor and the city council because there were many, there were some city council members who didn't even want to deal with this at all. Um, but kind of what's happened is since those four memorials came down, mayor Mitch Landrew kind of gets to walk away as a, a solo hero in this, right? I mean, he recently released a book um, about his, trials and ordeals in um, coming to this very difficult decision, I guess, um, to bring down these monuments. Meanwhile, there has not been much conversation between the activists who, you know, the mostly Black, if not all Black activists who've been pushing for this for decades. Um, You see a similar thing happening in Memphis. There's a group called Take Them Down Memphis. This is a network, right? You know, these are a lot of Black people in a lot of cities that, you know, they've had it up to here with 
having, you know, parks named after Klan members and, and monuments named after Confederates throughout their city. So in Memphis, huge push there to bring down the monuments. Mayor finds a creative way to do it. Still not a lot of conversation going on between the mayor, city government, and the activists. But uh, one of the Black activists in Memphis, uh, Tammy Sawyer, uh, she was one of the leaders of Take Him Down Memphis. She actually just joined the government. She, um, she ran to be uh, county commissioner for Shelby County, where Memphis is located, and she was elected. Now you have a situation where one of the activists who's been pushing for, again, not just bringing down these Confederate monuments, but trying to, trying to bring the city into this uh, culture of dismantling white supremacy in general, she is now in government, right, in county government, and I am, I'm really excited to see what kind of things that she will uh, try to implement and execute as a county commissioner uh, to, you know, to bring people up to speed on this whole movement to dismantle white supremacy. Once monuments are dismantled, street names are changed, do you get a sense of the ways that especially activists um, and perhaps their their partners in city government um, deal with the next steps. What are the next steps after a takedown occurs? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, I know in New Orleans there is a process playing out to do exactly that. Some of the activists there are part of this process to have uh, people of New Orleans, the residents of New Orleans, uh, crowdsource if you will, uh, new ideas of what should go up in place of uh, the, the fallen Confederate monuments. And that is very much something that is happening, um, you know, with the, with the city, in tandem with the city government. Um, kind of has to be that way. I mean, the city government still owns this these grounds, right? Still owns the land. Before something else goes up, you got to have the permission and the cooperation of the city. Um, but um, I'm I'm really excited. A, a good friend of mine, Brian Lee, is helping to lead that effort in New Orleans. He was a guest on our podcast with Sue Mobley and uh, Paper Monuments. It's a sibling project of of Monument Labs. We've been working closely with them for the last few years. Yep, yep, um, yeah. Brian and Sue, they are you know they are they are true leaders in New Orleans. Um, and they, they are leading this process. And I can't tell you where precisely they are right now with it. Um, but in, in, but I, I can say that, you know, in, in starting this process of getting the entire city together, so as a city, they can come up with ideas as to what should replace the Confederate monuments. Now you're, you're, you're generating conversations and discussions um, throughout the city about not only the the memorials to white supremacy that were that were once standing and why they had to come down, but also about ideas about uh, the names of, of people and places that should be lifted up. You know, these these heroes, black heroes, Latino heroes, women heroes in the city, uh, whose identities have been stamped out because of the fealty to white supremacy. And now we have this opportunity to lift these people up as the true as true heroes, you know, who, who, who we should, you know, people who have been working to unite the city, uh, people who have been working to uh, help black people uh, vote, uh, helping black people, um, you know, better participate in democracy. These are the kinds of people who should have been lifted up to begin with. Um, and now the city finally get to have some discussions about who these people are. Uh, it, it can never be underestimated how the level of ignorance there is about, you know, people of color and women who, you know, who fought for voting rights, civil rights, human rights. Um, but again, whose who's aims and voices get erased, if not overcast, because usually there's, you know, again, there's usually a white male uh, who wants to kind of be the lone victor. And this is the kind of thing that I think they're trying to work through. In your writing, you weave together stories of visits to monuments and sites of public memory, whether that includes the National Memorial for Peace and Justice um, or in a piece for the Atlantic, um, a drive along Jefferson Davis Highway um, nearby Richmond, Virginia. And, um, you know, in that piece titled Harriet Tubman Was My Wonder Woman, 
you reflect on the visit to that monument with your then 12-year-old son, and you pause to examine a Confederate monument. I, I don't know if this is too personal or not. Would you share or could you share some of the experience of visiting sites and what it means to you and, and your family to experience those in the, in the process of reporting and traveling? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's it, traveling to these sites, you know, it's uh, it's an opportunity for me to have a father son conversation about white supremacy. Right. My son, he's 15 now. Uh, when we did that story, he may have been 12 or 13. I kind of look for any opportunity I can to talk about racism and white supremacy with him to help him understand, you know, that this isn't just some stuff that happened hundreds of years ago, um, that there are symbols and, ex- and examples of this that exist today. Wanting to share with him that these things are literally enshrined in um, our, our cities and our landscapes and our roads, our bridges, our schools, our streets, um, and help him understand that, you know, one, it's not cool. And two, you don't, you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> you know, like you can speak up. You can say, I don't want this. I don't want to be reminded of this. I don't think that this is appropriate. Uh, I remember when we did that stretch down Jefferson, um, Jefferson Highway, it was a learning experience for both of us, really, because I, I had, you know, I had probably driven up and down that highway dozens of times throughout my life, but I never stopped to get out the car to go look at these monuments that are, you know, that are literally sprinkled across this highway, especially as you get closer to Richmond. So, you know, we, I got out with him, we would read it, you know, and then we have iPads and iPhones now. So not only are we reading inscriptions, but we can look these things up. We can look up who these people are, you know, not only in, look at not only what they were doing in the civil war, but also what they were doing, uh, in their lives. Uh, did they own slaves? Um, how did they treat women? You know, what were their views and, and, and perspectives on, on civil rights and voting rights? So, you know, we, that was the kind of experience that, that we had. Um, I remember uh, one of the, I tried to put this in the Atlantic story. I think they may have taken it out. Um, but one of the monuments we stopped at, we read about one of the generals and then we looked them up and, you know, he was a, you know, he was a, he was a creepy guy. Um, needless to say. And I remember my son asked if he could pee on the monument. Um, and, uh, as a father, as a responsible father, I couldn't allow that inside. I I wanted him to, I wanted to join him in peeing on it, but I didn't, I didn't want to obviously set that kind of example as a father, but I didn't say that he could not do it. What I told him is when we get in the car, you know, look up a book, do some further research on this monument, um, on who this guy is and, you know, write me a report about this monument and why it's a bad thing. And if you do all of that, I don't care what you do to it. You know, you could, you could spray paint it. You could take a, take a dump on it. I don't care. I did that not necessarily to encourage that outcome, but more to steer him towards like, you know, studying and investigating the history it's very easy to just kind of, you know, dump on things, you know, piss on things. But, you know, let's take a look at what we're dumping on first and understand why it's so bad. Um, don't just take my word for it. You know, as a, this is as a 12, 13-year-old. You know, I, I, I really encourage him to kind of investigate these kinds of histories for himself. That particular trip, what I, from what I remember, that, that was pretty intentional. As it was, we were actually driving to uh to charleston um charleston south carolina because if i'm if i'm not mistaken that was not long after the uh dylan roof shot up the mother emmanuel church um in charleston and so we were actually driving from washington dc and we had stopped at richmond so we this was a completely educational road trip right um where we're driving to Charleston, but we're also stopping at these other places uh, so that we can talk about 
literally the the legacy of of racism and white supremacy that had led up to that moment where Dylan Roof walks into a, a black church and slaughters nine African Americans. In that way, once we got to the church, once my wife and my son, once we got to Mother Emmanuel Church, my son he asked, you know, why would why would anybody do that? Well, now he knows why because we stopped at all of those monuments and we did all of that. We had that educational journey leading up to Charleston. Now he understands in a very visceral and visual way. As a reporter, you know, in, in a moment where um, journalists are under attack, um, where a series of African American women journalists in the uh, White House press corps are disrespectfully communicated with by the president. What is your duty? What is the way that you keep your purpose and your focus in your reporting? The purpose is dismantle white supremacy. I'm, I'm going to shout that all day long till the grave. Um, that that is that is the purpose, and white supremacy is going to do what it's going to do. You know, when white supremacy is threatened. Yeah, it's it's going to um, incite, if not exact, violence on journalists and particularly journalists of color. Uh, when white supremacy feels threatened, yes, it's going to insult women. Uh, it's going to insult the disabled. It's going to insult and offend, you know, anybody who who dares to stand in its path, who dares to question it, who dares to challenge it. That's nothing new. The violence is definitely unsettling because we we already know how this thing can turn out right we don't have to go back far in history to understand we don't have to go back to the civil war to understand that once you start enforcing white supremacy through uh the execution or even the incitement of violence against people of color uh and when if that's coming from the leader of a nation, if it's coming from a president, we only need to go back to Hitler's army to understand like, like how far that thing can go. It's important now because it's in our living and present memory, um, you know, what happened with the, the Nazi empire. We have to do everything, everything that we can to ensure that it never gets to that point again, which is why we can never normalize or take for granted, you know, any kind of, you know, trifling statement that comes from the president or that comes from the governor, you know, or, you know, like in Mississippi, the the person running for uh, Senate uh, joking about, you know, going to a public hanging and being in a front row seat. We, we can never, you know, it, it, as triggering or as, you know, damaging as those and, and troubling, um, as those statements are, we can never just let that slide. You know, you, you have to keep pressing on. You have to keep questioning that. You have to keep calling it out and calling it out and uh, very loudly. So, so everyone understands that this is not okay. There's a whole history behind public hangings and lynchings um, and nationalism. They're not even dog whistles anymore. I mean, these are, these are pure dog yelps that are, that are going out right now. We have to, we have to, not just quiet those, but we have to completely mute them. You attended the University of Pittsburgh. And um, in the aftermath of the Tree of Life Synagogue massacre, you wrote a poignant piece um, focusing on the neighborhood um, in which the Tree of Life Synagogue um, sits in Pittsburgh, Squirrel Hill. And it read as highly personal honest, uh, sobering, and is really meaningful to read. How did you decide to write that piece? It wasn't difficult. Um, I lived in the neighborhood uh, where the Tree of Life Synagogue is located, um, the neighborhood of Squirrel Hill. Uh, I lived there for many years. Um, Right now, I live in a neighborhood that neighbors Squirrel Hill, so it's literally across the river from me. I was in Squirrel Hill when it happened um, with my family on my way to to brunch. Uh, 
And, you know, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. I don't have much connection or proximity to Jewish life uh, in the religious or cultural sense. I, I don't think I have one close friend who's an actual kind of practicing Jew. Um, but, you know, while I don't know what it is like to live as a Jewish person, I definitely know what it's like to not feel safe or to have my life threatened or to uh, be targeted or scapegoated as the reason why some, why uh, society is perceived as messed up or wrong because of my race, because of my skin color, because of who I am. My connection to place, meaning the neighborhood Squirrel Hill, was reason enough for me to, you know, express my condolences, um, not just for the people of that synagogue and that neighborhood, um, but also for Jewish people in general. Um, you know, it, and, and, and it was something that, uh, you know, I just felt I needed, I needed people to understand. I knew that there were going to be a lot of people writing about the hate crime itself, the actual shooting. I knew there were going to be a lot of people writing about the synagogue and about the attack on Jewish people in general. I also knew that, you know, um, I knew Squirrel Hill very, very well. Um, and I wanted, I wanted people to understand that Squirrel Hill really is an exceptional neighborhood in Pittsburgh. There's a lot of segregation in Pittsburgh, something like 100 neighborhoods. But the majority of African-Americans are literally squeezed into three or four neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, right? Every other neighborhood you go into, it's predominantly white. All the people you're going to walk and drive past are white. Any store, bank, uh, hospital, uh, any building edifice at all you go into, it's going to be mostly white people that you are interacting with. Um, and there's not enough commerce and business going on in the black neighborhoods to even speak of. So nine times out of 10, you're dealing with white people and you're interacting with them. And you're, if you're not white, then you're constantly reminded of your proximity to whiteness, you know, as a consumer or as a, uh, as a resident or as a constituent. But that's not the case when you go to Squirrel Hill. Um, you go to Squirrel Hill, there's a lot of Jewish businesses, but there's also a lot of uh, Asian, you know, Chinese, Taiwanese businesses, restaurants. Uh, there are Indians, Hindus, Palestinians that have businesses there. Um, there are Black-owned, I mean, there's a Black bar <laughs> in Squirrel Hill. I mean, by a Black bar, I mean, you go in there and it's like mostly African-Americans behind the bar and sitting at the bar. And th you just don't see that kind of diversity in any other neighborhood in Squirrel Hill. You, you absolutely don't. It was because of that kind of diversity um, and that kind of welcoming and that kind of inclusion that somebody like me, like I, I always felt comfortable there. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. A lot of black people who spoke up after I wrote that piece who, um, who agreed that they, they had that same kind of welcome and embracing feeling when they were in Squirrel Hill. I, I, I tried very hard to find black people who did not feel that way. Like before I wrote that piece, I, I was on Facebook and on group text saying like, hey, has anybody had a racist <laughs> experience in Squirrel Hill? Please let me know because I'm about to talk about how warm and fuzzy and diverse it is. But I don't want a bunch of people writing me afterwards saying like, are you crazy? Like, that's you know, there's, there's a lot of racism there. Um, but literally, I mean, nine out of 10 black people that I spoke with, they all had this feeling. So I knew that this was, this was a thing. And it's the kind of thing that I feel, you know, when I'm in many neighborhoods, when I'm in Brooklyn or certain parts of Brooklyn, uh, or when I'm in Atlanta, you know, I've, I've lived in New Orleans, I've lived in DC, I've lived in Montgomery, Alabama. I, so I know what segregation feels like, and I know what it feels like to be in a neighborhood where you are viewed almost completely with suspicion, you know, just for being black. And I know that in a lot of different contexts. Um, Squirrel Hill is one of the few places in my life that I did not feel that way. And, and, I, and I understood that this was because of how Jewish people presented the neighborhood. Um, I know how Pittsburgh would like to present itself to the rest of the nation. 
um, it, it aspires to have the kind of welcoming and inclusion and diversity that Squirrel Hill has. It is far from Squirrel Hill, but Squirrel Hill is basically the apotheosis of that in Squirrel Hill. I felt deep down inside that the guy who shot up the synagogue, um, he definitely, we know that he blamed the Jew, like the Jewish people uh, for sponsoring this program um, that would have brought in immigrant refugees from conflict nations, many of them in Africa, the Middle East, and South America. And the guy who shot the synagogue, that was specifically the kind, the, the thing that incited him to go in there and, and, and do that massacre. Um, but that program, that immigrant refugee welcoming program that that synagogue sponsored was basically in sync, in, in sync and in line with, with really the culture and, and the, and the, the value system of Squirrel Hill as exemplified by the kinds of people that you see going in and out of there all day, every day. Um, so, you know, this was, that was an attack on diversity. It was an attack on sanctuary. And, um, and that was the kind of story that I wanted to present to help people understand it wasn't just a synagogue. This entire neighborhood was like that. Brenton Mock, thank you for taking the time for this conversation and, and for all of your reporting. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a great combo. Brenton Mock is a staff writer for City Lab. Read one of his newest pieces, The Strangest Form of White Flight, on citylab.com. You can follow him at Brenton Mock. You can listen to Monument Lab and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, remember to leave a rating or review. It really helps. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Serdna Foundation. This podcast is written and produced by Paul Farber and Justin Geller. Designer and associate producer is William Roy Hodgson. Sound engineer, Justin Geller. Editorial coordinator, Steph Garcia. All music on the podcast is original by Mokita. I'm your host, Paul Farber. For more, Visit us at monumentlab.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.